these buildings have always weathered the storm of a soft market. They're always high demand because there are people that really, really gravitate to things that are older and have some style. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate related topics in the western part of the United States. Today we'll visit with Maureen McNabb, owner of Capital Property Management Services, about unreinforced masonry buildings and the City of Portland's push to regulate and register those buildings. Maureen has been in the property management business since 1990, currently manages over 2,200 units, as well as being an industry leader and involved in legislation. Thank you for joining us to learn a bit about how unreinforced masonry is impacting tenants, landlords, and the marketplace. Well, Maureen, nice to have you on the show today. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the things you are involved in now? You bet. Thanks for having me on today, Matt and Nick. Uh, super excited about the subject matter. I've been in the business for 29 years, started with a single family home and currently have under my purview 145 buildings in the city of Portland and currently uh, employ 49 employees. So have a bit of background in the, uh, the management side of things. So excited to share some of my experience and uh, knowledge with you today. Great. Well, you know, before we dive too deep into the topic, um, could you explain just a little bit of what URM buildings are for uh, those in the audience who, who may not be familiar with, first off, the acronym, but then also, um, you know, what they look like or the appeal and that kind of thing? Yeah. Unreinforced Masonry is the acronym, the URM, Unreinforced Masonry Buildings, uh, typically are, um, certainly in the city of Portland, built roughly around 1905 through 1935, um, you know, have particularly interesting architectural features. And um, I would say make up a, a good portion of the multifamily and commercial buildings uh, that make Portland sort of a unique city on the West Coast. Yeah, you know, it's definitely something that in the inner core that gives it the character, right? Some of the appealing pieces of major metropolitans that have the masonry look or the uh, buildings of that period um, certainly make it that appealing neighborhood walk walkable place, right? Well, absolutely. I think what is kind of interesting is, you know, West Coast versus East Coast. East Coast is very accustomed to having um, turn-of-the-century buildings that make up, a, you know, the predominant part of some of those metropolitan areas. The West Coast, being a newer um, uh, part of the United States, don't have as many. So when we do see them, we kind of get excited about it. And, and I think part of the appeal is that we are preservationists here, and we see these as rare gems. Yeah, so um, I mean that's one of the actual, um, I guess, appeals for those buildings. It seems like in the area, I know that for a long time, at least you know, especially over the last ten years, people have kind of looked to get their hands on, you know, what they call brickers or buildings with that type of character that masonry brings. Um, do you know if that's changing at all, and if so, you know, why that might be? You know, I can't say that it's changing. In fact, I think in a way they are becoming more popular. Um, and, and they're more popular because if you just think about the architectural side of things, 
you're looking at rare craftsmen, people, architects, construction engineers that really had a trade that you don't see any longer. So I think that they're more coveted than ever. And then when you see all the new buildings uh, being erected next to them, you really start to see, you know, the um, dra- drastic difference between uh, real fine architecture and something that doesn't look terribly uh, different than the next building um, that's being erected. So they become almost a little bit more visible uh, amongst uh, modern uh, uh, development, if you will. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, it definitely is something that, I mean, they do stand out a lot. Um, but, you know, one of the things that has happened recently is that the URM buildings have become a bit of a hot topic in larger, you know, metropolitan areas. Recently, you know, places, whether it's San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, you know, they're talking about retrofitting those buildings. Um, this has really become a focal point for many um, local municipalities. Um, can you give us some background on why that is and the perceived, you know, danger of those buildings? Well, you know, I'm not sure if you recall the New York Times article that came out five, seven years ago that really put this subject on the map for certainly Portland because we are in the major subduction zone. So it all of a sudden got national exposure and focus. And because Portland has roughly, I think, 200 buildings considered unreinforced masonry, became a real uh, focal point for us. And all of a sudden, uh, state and local government started to focus on this, you know, in the event of a a big event, uh, such as a, you know, 9.0 earthquake, what would happen to the city of Portland? So it became a very um, hot topic. It remains a hot topic today, but it's a complicated subject. Um, so, uh, you know, just in a very quick, brief nutshell, I would say that's that's how it sort of became um, a front and center of uh, many of the um, real estate concerns, if you will. Yeah. And I, I remember when that article came out and just the local reaction in Portland, I think a lot of people were really surprised that uh, that was a possible, you know, scenario that could unfold over here in the Northwest. A lot of times we think we're pretty you know, isolated away from earthquakes. We don't always think that as, a, as an Oregon problem, more of a maybe a California problem or other places like that. Um, but, you know, obviously, to your point, this has kind of turned the direction um, of the city of Portland more towards this particular topic. Um, so there's, you know, a high concentration in certain parts of the city, you know, particularly northwest uh, Portland, where you're going to see more um, URM buildings. And, you know, the city's kind of put forth some pretty draconian measures. Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about some of the requirements the city has attempted to impose on URM buildings? Well, the most um, recent uh, policy that they had tried to uh, impose on building owners was at a bare minimum placarding buildings, notifying public that this could be considered an unsafe structure in the event of an earthquake. So, you, you know, you can imagine what that did to local investors, um, you know, almost like a scarlet letter on their investment, uh, identifying it as potentially an unsafe structure. Thankfully, uh, there was a suit filed earlier this year, and there was an injunction passed, thankfully, 
that is providing investors and building owners of URM structures more time uh, while policymakers get um, uh, s- some new thoughts on the table in um, making sure that the public is safe, but still preserving people's investments, you know, and not calling them out as really unsafe structures. Because again, I think that that that's a knee jerk reaction to a very very big problem and challenge that we will have in making sure that places are safe and you know uh, safeguarding people is in the housing community among our number one priorities so it's complicated yeah you know it's interesting because in the real estate industry we really fully understand that there are different um potential hazards right lead-based paint asbestos and we've learned over time that a certain amount of disclosure um is something that's just expected and sometimes regulated, right? Uh, lead-based paint, obviously, is a federal regulation. Uh, the disclosure of uh, lead-based paint to tenants and to um, buyers as well. Um, but, you know, it, it does oftentimes begin with something and, and then regulations roll out. You know, you mentioned that um, how many uh, properties are out there that are currently in, quote-unquote, need of retrofitting in order to make make them safe. Do you know how the city is assisting in this campaign to create the safety that they're aiming for? Or is it just a carte blanche? Hey, um, you know, landlords, we want you to take care of this. If you own a building, you've got to, you know, begin this process. Cause my recollection is that's kind of how it started. And they, then they understood the complexity of it. So can you give us a little bit of background on how that just kind of rolled out initially from the city and what the city really sees as their role in this campaign? Well, I think like Many uh, city governments, again, they also want to make sure that they preserve their city and safeguard uh, their citizens. So when you when you are put on notice, for example, that there could be a potential problem, you want to fix it and you want to fix it quickly. Like most uh, policies, they take an inor- extraordinary amount of time to vet and to really consider all the factors and the repercussions and the unintended consequences that it imposes on investors. So, uh, you know, it started at the city level. It has sort of moved at more of a state uh, narrative and conversation level. But I think that the city is trying very desperately to make sure they have done their part to safeguard their citizens. And so as a result, you had this very quick, uh, you know, sort of um, policy of placarding. And it was, I think, their answer to making citizens aware. Now, having said that, you know, what are they doing to help investors locally Uh, meet those challenges of potentially retrofitting their buildings to make them safer? Well, they don't have a plan just yet. So we'll have to see how this rolls out. But um, again, it's so complicated and there are so many stakeholders here in this conversation that they don't really have an answer. So it's an ongoing um, conversation with investors, banking, insurance folks. So there are a lot of people involved in this and it's not going to uh, roll out definitively with any, you know, um, 
I think, superb answers for anybody for some time. I think they're making baby steps. But as of today, you know, I can't tell you that there is an answer yet for anybody that owns these buildings. You know, Maureen, that's a really good point that, you know, this is not an isolated issue that is, um, you know, landlord versus tenant or city versus uh, property owner. Um, it, it does stretch pretty wide. And as you mentioned, you know, it's not just apartment buildings. There are also uh, storefronts and commercial spaces where you have folks that are providing some of the needed jobs, some of the needed amenities, some of the stores, shops, restaurants as well. And it's not unique just to Portland. So do you know how other metropolitan areas or, you know, if uh, other metropolitan areas are having the same push from a city level and perhaps a state level and how they're dealing with it? Well, I think uh, we can look to our neighbors in the north, Seattle, our uh, our sister city on the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they're also going through similar uh, challenges with no serious answers as yet. I, I think the biggest challenge for um, the states that are involved in these conversations are how how are they going to help property owners make these investments in retrofitting and making their buildings safer without breaking the bank. So, you know, the participation on a state and potentially on a federal level will be key in assisting property owners in um, having the funds, tax credits, uh, some kind of incentive to be able to afford these things. You know, because you own one building doesn't mean you're, you know, a, a billionaire with uh, buckets of cash ready to infuse uh, in your building. I mean, a lot of these folks will have to get lending assistance and lenders are skittish, as as you could imagine. But you don't know what you don't know. And so I think that's our problem. We don't have enough facts. We don't have enough information to properly plan out a roadmap for these property owners. So it requires a lot of people coming to a table, hearing perspectives and the challenges, both as owners and both at a city and government level. Again, you know, reinforcing the idea that you want to protect your citizens. That's a great point. The, the other uh, issue here is that it's not really without controversy with the landlord groups aside. The NAACP recently got involved uh, and opposes the placarding. Why is that? Well, you know, they're considered to be one of the most vulnerable uh, property owners in our communities and may not have the same um, access to funding. And so, again, you know, we look at our communities as a whole and we want to make sure that collectively we're all being represented, represented. And the NAACP felt that there was a segment of our population that just doesn't have the wherewithal to support these kind of pressures. And, you know, I understand that. Um, again, you know, I, I'll go back to just a single property owner. That individual, too, may not have the access to financing. And, uh, you, you know, you just look at the domino effect that this can have on somebody. Uh, and if they can't afford to do retrofits, they have no choice but to sell that asset. And that may be their only asset, but that's an asset that's somewhat like their 401k. So I can identify why that group did surface. And uh, 
it's worthy of, of, of looking at that. Yeah, you know, I'm. Um, this is Nick again, Maureen. I, I think that the NAACP was certainly a surprise uh, ally in you know the, kind of the opposition against the placarding, um, which was pretty welcome and kind of an interesting perspective that they were taking, but nonetheless valuable. And it does kind of you know show that this is a community issue at large and needs to be thought through pretty carefully. Now. Earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned that a federal judge had delayed implementation of the ordinance by the city of Portland here in particular. What was that all about? Do you know, you know the decision behind that? Maybe what's going on, um, what we can expect? You know, I haven't taken the deep dive into that, uh, Nick, but I can tell you that uh, the lawsuit was based on... Um, uh, well, in fact, I-, I can't even really tell you the particulars on that. Uh, subject matter. But my understanding is that that lawsuit basically was brought about because it was unconstitutional to require property owners to be forced to put verbiage uh, publicly um, by a government agency. So it, it effectively, my understanding again, forgive me, but it effectively uh, contradicts uh, free speech, and so I I believe it was it was on that basis that that uh, lawsuit was brought about. Well, that's certainly fascinating, and I mean, you know, we're definitely seeing an approach from a lot of local governments, you know, all over the West Coast, um, you know, certainly throughout the country, but definitely on the West Coast where they're kind of coming from a position of it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, and so they're just kind of throwing things at the wall and trying to see what sticks, and so maybe that's a case of what's going on here with this particular you know, judge's position and uh, wanting to potentially delay uh, the implementation and um, take a deeper look at, at what the ordinance has been, you know, asking owners in the community to do. Um, so I think right now what we're going to do, you know, we appreciate you joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break so we can get a word from our sponsor. Uh, and we'll be back with you here shortly to discuss the impact of some of these policies, you know, more directly on landlords, tenants, and those who may be interested in investing in some of these buildings, we'll talk a little bit of the operational side. So we're going to go ahead and head to a quick break right now. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, go to bisonproperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com. Okay, so now we're back from our break, and we're going to jump into some more discussions from an operational perspective. So Maureen, you've, you know, been known to manage a lot of these buildings, the URM buildings, some of the, you know, most beautiful buildings uh, in Portland. So you have a lot of experience with them, I imagine. Um, what do you think some of the, you know, maintenance pros and cons are of ownership of a building that's, you know, designed around, you know, masonry elements, uh, like a URM building? Well, certainly plumbing will always be the number one um, issue. I mean, you're dealing with uh, original piping, uh, mostly, uh, oftentimes original boilers that heat the buildings. And uh, I would say 
if you are an investor and you're looking at a, a potential purchase, those are the kinds of things you're, you're going to want to pay attention to. Now, having said that, it doesn't typically scare anyone. You know, these are things that can be uh, addressed if there are plumbing issues, old pipes need to be replaced. These are very doable, non-invasive uh, upgrades that can be done in these buildings. But I would say that those those would be the things to to pay attention to. Of course, you're going to look at exterior facade. You're going to be looking at uh, the brick and the integrity of the masonry, uh, as we're talking about uh, mason uh, masonry buildings. Um, so you're looking at tuck pointing. You're looking at anything deteriorating on the exterior. So those are typical um, items that you could expect could be costly. Uh, but once you've done them, there's sort of a one and done and you move on. And do you think that, you know, again, in the northwest kind of region of the country, you know, we have a lot more water, obviously, you know, a masonry building down in Southern California or Arizona, you know, Nevada, some places like that might do really well. Um, do you think they hold up pretty well just in you know the conditions we have up here? We have a lot more water and humidity. You know, I, I actually think they do fabulously well, um, you know, in the 29 years that I've been managing uh, I, and knowing that, you know, most of the properties that I manage are vintage turn of the century product. Um, they are more resilient, if you can believe it, than newer construction. I cannot tell you, uh, the amount of problems that I have had to handle with newer construction versus the older. So, I always am very bullish on an older building because I think they're just made phenomenally well. I mean, we go back to, you know, folks in the trades at, at the turn of the century. These were craftsmen. These were artists. These are people that really knew their trade. And uh, look at today's uh, construction tradesmen. You know, you don't see that anymore. It's very, very hard to find somebody old school. Um, so, again, uh, I, I'll always uh, look at, at an old building before I look at a new building because, of course, I, I love them. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's a lot of reasons to, to feel that way. And I think you're right. You know, there was a huge push uh, in the country in the early you know, 1910s and 20s to really beautify cities. Um, and I think a big part of that and pride and work kind of came from that. Um, do you run into any issues with or I guess I should say, you know, are your clients... Um, buying earthquake insurance or finding that it's affordable or are they just kind of rolling the dice and saying, you know, we'll see what happens? There isn't one owner that I manage for that owns a, a URM building that doesn't have earthquake insurance. In fact, uh, the banks are requiring it as part of their underwriting um, line items. Uh, I don't know anybody that wants to roll the dice, given that we are, you know, sitting on the Cascadia subduction zone yeah. and, and really, you know, it's a pittance for, uh, what you have in your hand, this beautiful gem, uh, the, the additional line item, it doesn't break the bank and it's just additional insurance to safeguard your investment. I, I think if a bank doesn't require that, I would say it's ill-advised not to have it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're, you're, you're spending a lot of money on an asset. You want to preserve it because um, they, they, they've said that that earthquake is overdue and it could show up at any time. It could happen tomorrow or it could be you know 50 years. I'm hoping it waits until I'm gone, but uh, you know we'll see what happens here. 
Um, I want to just circle back just a little bit back to some of the um, URM stuff going on in the city. I just think that this is a good way for us to kind of see how other cities might respond. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say is going to be the impact of the placarding and the disclosure requirements will have on, you know, the owners of the building as well as the tenant. I mean, what are some of the things that you're uh, concerned about should this move forward and, and be part of, you know, the ordinances? Well, I think back to Matt's point when he talked about, you know, the requirements to disclose if you're in a pre-1978 structure to let a resident know that there could be lead uh, hazards in their dwelling and asbestos for that matter. Um, this is somewhat not different. I think the only difference right now is when you placard a building, you know, you are calling attention to a potential problem. Now, that's not a bad thing, but let's say you own a building, you've got 20 apartments, and your building is considered URM and now must be placarded. If I were a resident and I came home from work that day and all of a sudden I saw, you know, an eight by 10 placard uh, that says this structure could be considered unsafe in the event of an earthquake, it would give me pause. I can tell you that. Do I want to stay here? I mean, there will be a percentage of those residents that will want to move because now they feel unsafe. That's a problem that we're going to have as managers and property owners, because would you strong arm someone, and let's just say they're in a lease term for 12 months, would you strong arm someone that lived in your building and said, well, yeah, gee whiz, I don't think you're going to be able to break your lease. You signed an agreement. Um, I just don't think that you, you, you will be able to enforce that. So what you might have is this, you know, percentage of people that move because they feel unsafe and you're going to let them leave because again, you're going to do the right thing. Now for anybody moving into a building that sees the placard, well, you've put them on notice. They then move in and they've agreed to and accept the risk of moving into a building like that. The information is not yet known because we don't have that happening at this time, but it is worrisome. And as a as manager and a property owner, uh, it is worrisome because I don't know what the effects will be. I don't know really how people are going to take that. Now, as human beings, we all like to think, well, nothing's going to happen to me. The big one's not going to hit. And in fact, we, we don't think about death really until we get older and then we sort of see the end of our useful life. But, um, you know, th there will be a segment of the population that won't move in potentially because they're frightened. So again, it remains to be seen, but it's an interesting question. And, and I don't really have the answer to that yet. Well, I think those are a lot of valid points. Um, you know, the question you proposed about, are you going to let somebody out of their lease? I mean, obviously, that's just a kind of a risk reward decision and a reputation decision. And, you know, you're in a unique situation in that when you're a manager, you know, following instructions as a fiduciary from the owner um, is going to, you know, kind of maybe put you in a position of maybe not having a consistent policy unless you, you know, have kind of prepped everyone for this is how we're going to respond when this situation arises. So have you had those conversations with, you know, your owners about, you know, if we have tenants who express these concerns, this is going to be our kind of, you know, standard response. 
I have many conversations about that. And as you could appreciate, each owner has a different perspective on how to handle it. I have the one that says, oh my gosh, you know, of course, let them out. And then I I go right to the extreme where I'd have someone else say, no, they signed a contract. We have a contract. Um, And so, you know, as a manager, it's my job to weigh, like you said, the risk reward and reputation aspect of it. Um, Our residents don't know who the owners are. They know who we are because we are the agent and represent the owner. So uh, maintaining a good reputation is paramount because we get our, our business mostly word of mouth and people know that we run a good shop and want to live in our communities. So I think it's incumbent on us to look at this really as uh, a number of balls in the air and which one will drop and, and really at the end of the day, what would be the risk? Um, I'd like to approach every situation uniquely and have those conversations when they arise with, with that property owner. Um, that is our obligation and, and those are conversations we have to have collectively. Um, and I think at the end of the day, I always want residents to feel safe. I want them to be happy. And I think that's our goal as managers. I mean, that's what we do for a living. We house people. Uh, we house people in beautiful buildings. But if I have a resident that doesn't feel comfortable, um, you know, that's part of the art of doing business. You negotiate. And, and you weigh those, uh, th- those um, elements of, of discussion and decide what's in, in your best interest and in that resident's best interest. You know, Maureen, you, you've really given us some great perspective on the management side of that and, and you know, the, on the operational side. My mind, because I represent uh, a lot of clients looking to, you know, convert some of their assets into larger assets. Mm-hmm. And obviously when they're purchasing a building or selling a building to, in order to provide for their family and their retirement account and put their kids through school and also, you know, to convert it into a larger asset or in, you know, uh, to differentiate their assets and uh, diversify they take some of these things into consideration as well, right? So what my, what my mind goes to is, okay, what's the impact going to be for my buyer or for my seller? Is this going to be a negotiating point where if I'm comparing two properties that have the same financials, because when you're looking at um, an investment property, you're looking at the, the return on your investment. If I'm looking at those two, are we going to be negotiating a little bit more on one asset that's performing at approximately the same rate of return versus another that the upcoming um, ordinance or municipality uh, may put forward some requirement to do something? Um, or is that something to consider? Have you experienced that or have any of your clients kind of thought about that from a sales perspective and a purchase perspective? Oh, those conversations are had weekly. Um, I can't tell you as we uh, are challenged with some of these local uh, potential ordinances and policies. Uh, my clients call and say, should I sell? What do you think we should do? Well, you know, the problem is when you don't have known facts, you don't know what the approach is going to be. It keeps people unsettled. And, you know, at the end of the day, the people that are owning these um, investments, the URMs particularly, without question, each and every one that I talk to don't want to let go of that investment because it is a gem. It's a rarity. 
And if you look to our city to the south, San Francisco is a perfect example. There is not a lot of negotiating that goes on, even though they're in a major earthquake zone. And why is that? Because these are high demand properties that also stay full all the time. I mean, they have zero vacancy rates in San Francisco. And you wonder why. Well, my gosh, why are people buying these properties if they're so potentially hazardous to live in, in the event of the big one? Well, I think that people are willing to risk that because there is an overwhelmingly um, pr- or overwhelming feeling of pride to own a turn-of-the-century architectural rarity. And it's always pride of ownership that just seems to um, outweigh um, the negatives. So it's interesting. Um, I think maybe initially there might be some negotiating uh, potential for somebody trying to sell or buy a URM, meaning that if you're selling, you might take a little bit of a hit because we still don't know what will be mandated by way of retrofitting. But on the, on the, uh, the buy side, I mean, people are going to end up with wonderful investments. And um, these are really meant for pride of ownership people that really understand older buildings and are not afraid of, you know, the repairs that we talked about earlier, some of the larger plumbing repairs. Those, again, outweigh some of the um, maybe pros to owning a, a, a brand new building. These buildings have always weathered the storm of a soft market. They're always high demand because there are people that really, really gravitate to things that are older and have some style. So I will always remain very bullish on this product. And for your potential investors, you know what the risks are. I mean, you just know that going in, but I don't think it deters people. Well, and and to your point, I mean, the, the period specific craftsmanship is an art right? And people don't buy art in the same way that they buy groceries. And there's a completely different perspective. Um, But on the investment side, the reason that the financials work is because the tenant finds value in that as well. And I think that that's oftentimes overlooked that, you know, the reason that those properties cash flow and that they're a good investment is not just because the market's great or not just because it's in Portland or San Francisco or Seattle, but because the tenants are willing to take the risk as well, living in in those um, buildings, but also they want to live in the cute bricker that's up the street, as opposed to the 1990s built or 1980s built, or you know even some of the brand new you know lead <laughs> certified buildings. It's just that's that's not their style. They would rather live in one of those brickers, and and that's really important to them, and they're willing to pay the rents, right? It comes down to a consumer based opportunity, both for the tenant and for the landlord. The landlord takes the risk, spends the money, um, puts puts units into the market for the tenants that are willing to pay market rent for them. And so mm-hmm. I, I really see a balance there. And, you know, I, I've seen, uh, to agree with you, I've seen that not to, not to really have an impact on the investors that I've been working with. When they're looking at a building, um, they're looking at the return, but they're also looking in the opportunity to provide a great product to people who are interested in the market um, in living in those in those units, and um, that's really been an interesting process because you get so many clients, and I'm sure you have a, a variety of different types of clients that 
um, you know, some are, are literally just looking at the return. Other people are, are wanting to tell their friends, yeah, I own that building. The one that you drive by that's really cute and has these features or that's been there, you know, proven for the last hundred years. And that's really, um, really an interesting concept to look at. But many people consider it a risk to buy a brand new building because they're using new products that haven't been tried and true and they don't necessarily know, you know, the settling hasn't com been completed yet. Uh, the airtight atmosphere that they're creating, you know, and the systems that are the, the new bell and whistle, maybe it's not something that they're hundred percent on board with. So, I mean, you may have found that in some of your clients as well. Well, I think what's really fascinating to me, as as much as the new product can be very alluring, very sexy, it's got all the amenities and bells and whistles, like you say, the old buildings are sustainable from a, a affordability price point. Let's put it that way, um, you know, relative to new product. So what's so nice about that is you can, you know, as a resident moves out, those tend to turn very quickly because they're high demand, because not only the price point, but also because of the architecture um, lure of these older buildings. So in the 29 years that I've managed, and, and I've been fairly focused on, on where I manage, you know, I keep it to the urban centric area, uh, high demand area. I haven't gone, you know, too far outside the city limits. Those occupancy rates have stayed extremely high in very soft markets where I can look at some of the newer product and that is not true. So your expenses start to go up once you have these vacancies for long term, you know, long term could be a month, it could be six weeks um, in a softer market. Plus you're giving away the farm by way of incentives in this uh, turn of the century product, the URM product, you don't do that. You know, if you have to come down slightly in rent, I mean, it doesn't even hit the radar in terms of, you know, uh, losing, you know, significant income. It's just coming down slightly. But, you know, you can immediately get a resident to move in. So there's so many benefits to the older architectural properties in our city. And I think that's why I've, uh, you know, knock on wood. Uh, been able to weather some some very soft markets over the years. So I'll always look to those as sort of my bread and butter to my operations. And it's been successful for me and I'm, I'm fortunate. And, you know, I wish I could say it was by design, but it was really by accident that I, that I started to manage these older brickers. But I'm really, uh, I'm really pleased that that's sort of my bailiwick and, and the mainstay of my business. Well, uh, you've certainly given us perspective because it, your um, your design and well, or as you just indicated, your lack of design, but kind of by accident, your niche is really in that in between phase. And I tell people this quite a bit. Um, a lot of my clients started with a single family home, and then they moved to three single family homes, and they want a four or eight plex. And if I'm not mistaken, your niche is between the four to six plex though I'm sure you have some of those. Um, and then that, you know, 45, 80, 90 unit building. And so there's that niche there, which um, you've always been respected in the, in the industry um, because it's something that is not quite on-site management, but it's also not um, just a, 
an a uh, in the office manager. And so that's really given us some great perspective. And obviously, your experience with these brickers on this topic specifically um, makes a, a really big difference. So we really appreciate your time on that and certainly the insight you've given us. We're going to transition a little bit into some personal questions to get to know you a little bit better here. Feel free. I'm ready for you. There we go. Okay. Well, first off, is there an aha moment that you've had in the past year that's changed how you approach some part of your career or your investment strategy or your personal life? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, I've taken on um, new challenges uh, by getting a little bit more immersed in the political side of what's going on in, in our industry. And I feel like mother hen in a way. I feel like now more than ever, based on so many of these challenges, URM policymaking being one of them, that I feel like I have to really safeguard and protect an industry that has been so good to me over my career. And uh, I really have to say it sort of propelled me into a new part of my career that I really didn't pay much attention to before because I didn't have to. But being in the business this many years and seeing all of the different pro-tenant challenges that we are being faced, I really feel now that it's time to uh, participate in a, in a new way. And it's also given me a little bit of a new perspective on the political process. You know, I'm very engaged in, in local politics by way of, you know, reading articles and such, but I feel now that I'm being a little bit more active and actually going to elected officials and, and really sort of, uh, putting my best foot forward in representing our industry and, and giving perspectives that people don't really understand what we really do in housing people in our community. So I, I would say it's really, it's really been the sort of the political side of things. Um, but I am very passionate about safeguarding uh, this industry and the things that uh, we do for our community. It really sounds like you're enjoying it too. I know you're really active there. And I think that that's something that, you know, you hear a lot about of or, or, or about, um, you know, Zig Ziglar talks about it. Dave mm-hmm. Ramsey talks about it. Um, Warren Buffett talks about it, how they spend their entire life doing what they love. And then at the tail end, uh, of their career or as they start to realize, okay, I can sit back a little bit. Instead, they don't sit back, but they sponsor and support and educate newcomers in the industry, their clients and the people that are around them. And it sounds like you're having fun doing that. So that's really great. Yeah, it's very rewarding. And I think I love nothing more than to be able to pass the baton on to a younger generation and let them know there's nothing to be afraid of um, in this industry, you know, we always have to face our fears and we do things sometimes that take us out of our comfort zone, but inevitably it makes us better business people and gives us more skill sets. And so I try to force myself to uh, do things that I'm not comfortable doing. Uh, one of them is, um, and Nick, you probably know this, uh, speaking, you know, to large crowds, not really in my comfort zone, but you know, each and every time I do it, I feel like I've provided valuable information to someone and maybe I've got them thinking in a new way or given them something new to think about and get excited about. Um, I don't think, you know, that this business is in my blood now. I could not easily give it up 
Um, I could give up the day-to-day operations of my business. I won't lie about that. Uh, <laughs> but, but in terms of, uh, of a career, it's, it's an extremely rewarding career. And I've met some fabulous residents over the years. And I've met fabulous property owners and folks like yourself. You know, we're all a community. And we learn so much from one another. And I love that part of my business. Well, you've definitely, um, you know, had everyone fooled on the nervous part about public speaking. I mean, you do a phenomenal job. Um, I've only had the pleasure of seeing you speak a few times, but I will say every time you've done an excellent job. So um, I think it's probably natural to probably have a little level of nervousness. I know even JFK got nervous before he would talk, and he's a pretty well-known orator. So um, obviously, I have my questions as well. And so I think... um, what I would like to ask here is, could you tell us about an important ritual you have and do every day? Uh, my ritual each day is when I get to work, the first thing I do is look at what I didn't finish the day before, before I even look at my computer. I will not open an email. I won't look at email until I look at my desk and make sure that everything I was working on the day before is finished and buttoned up. Then I will tackle the next round of um, uh, challenges as, you know, in our business. I think we each uh, can relate to uh, the things that hit us each and every day that are different and always challenging. You think you've figured it all out until the new problem shows up. But um, learning to manage the influx of information coming uh, each day uh, has been a real uh, challenge for me so that I don't get overwhelmed. So I really like to just take time in the morning not to uh, see what's going to hit the bow that given day. I really like to just button up everything from the day before, before I start seeing the next wave of information coming in. And it gives me sort of peace of mind and it helps me manage other people's expectations about what they can expect from me. Because if you answer your emails, you know, Johnny on the spot, as soon as they hit your, your computer, there's an expectation uh, each and every time that you're going to do that. And when you're not able to do that, people get frustrated. So I like to put sort of the parameters are on my availability because everything that I do, I take great care in and that each, each thing is very important. So I can't do a hundred percent fabulous job if I've got 15 things coming at me and I can only do small little bits and pieces of it. So that's my ritual uh, when I arrive to, to the office. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a really effective energy and time management strategy. I know it's easy to get bombarded, and um, sounds like also what you've done is kind of help set expectations. Because, um, like you said, yeah, if people think you know they're going to hear back from you immediately, then that becomes the standard, and that's just not something practical that people can deliver every time. Um, the other question I have here is, how do you measure success? You know, um, it's definitely not with the almighty dollar success for me is do I have a staff that's happy that likes to come to my office each and every day and walk through that threshold because when they walk through that threshold, they become my family and I want my staff to feel like they're part of a family and that I'm working 
with them shoulder to shoulder, and they're not working for me. Um, and so the measure is, do I, you know, retain employees for a long time? And uh, do I give back to my employees? So do I share the wealth? You know, when I get new property onboarded, it's not to line my pocket. It's to help the next generation um, get to the next level of their income um, expectations. And for me, that's a measure of success. And, you know, perhaps when I was younger, I didn't really understand that. But as, I, as I've gotten older, um, I want people to be happy that are around me. As they're happier, then my owners are going to reap the benefits of uh, great uh, folks working at their properties and willing to do jobs that maybe other people don't want to do but with a smile on their face. So for me, that's, that's success. And then just balancing, you know, your live work. I mean, truly th that's a balance and, you know, prioritizing. Everybody has different priorities. Um, you know, I remember years ago, uh, my husband asked me because I was working, you know, my early on in my career, I'd work ridiculous hours. And, and he said to me, you know, let me ask you something. Do you want to be remembered for being the best property manager? Or would you like to be remembered as the best mother and wife? And when he said it to me, I mean, I looked at him. I probably had tears in my eyes. I said, well, of course I want to be the best mother and best wife. He said, well, you know, it's time to stop working. Meaning you, you can turn the phone off now. You don't have to work for, you know, uh, till 10 o'clock at night. And I'll never forget that because it was, talk about an aha moment. It was at that point that I realized he's right. Because if something were to happen to me today, inevitably somebody else will take my place that can do as good or better of a job than me. And I'll be old news. And you look at people that retire, for example, might have been very wildly successful in their career, but the day they retire, they're old news because somebody else has stepped in. That's certainly perspective. I mean, balance is always challenging. Uh, I think for anyone who cares about their job, who is good at what they do, and is sought after by people, right? I mean, I, I think in general, in this industry, uh, we provide so much to clients that they do depend on us. But I think you're absolutely right. We might be excellent at what we do. But there's always someone out there that will pick it up when we're not there to do it, right? Right. So, uh, you know, that balance really is hard. Um, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Well, um, I think I'd have to say my father. My father was a fabulous um, character. And I say this because, you know, it's only in death that you wished you had done something more and had special times. Uh, you know, I admire a lot of people, but my father was just a phenomenal man. And he was so generous as a person. Uh, he had the most fabulous laugh. And I would love to hear that again. And again, as you get older, you covet those things more. And you covet them even more when you don't have them any longer. But he was a great, um, he was a great example for me in my life. He was, he sacrificed a lot for our family. Uh, you know, I didn't come from money, uh, 
my sisters and my brother and I, we all put ourselves through school, uh, college that is. Uh, my folks didn't have the money, but boy, you never knew that. My father was the most giving individual, and he w- he had the gift of great storytelling. And you can't find that any longer. You know, great storytellers are hard to come by because you don't, there isn't the gift of language like there used to be. You know, everybody is so consumed with their devices that pictures are telling their stories. So they don't really know how to articulate. And so he was a great storyteller. So I would love to, to, you know, have that time again with him and just have a really fabulous meal and uh, pick his brain on so many other things that I, I really just didn't. And uh, so if, if I could, that, that would be, that would be my guy. Well, I mean, really, it sounds like that's an extension of your measures of success, right? I mean, uh, what your father was to you and being that example and that um, the best father um, is kind of what you want to be providing right now. Every now and again, I think of that a little bit myself and thinking, you know, who am I impacting now that would remember me and want to remember me later on, which is what you've done, you know, obviously, um, you know, with your husband, with your kids. Uh, that's really critical. So that that's powerful. Thank you. My question now is if you had to choose one and, I, and only one, would you choose whiskey or wine? Whiskey. Excellent <laughs> answer. Great answer. <laughs> Excellent answer. All right. Well, you know, we want to thank you for coming in and spending time with us today and the audience today. How can somebody or the audience get a hold of you um, or view your information? Well, my email address is Maureen at CapitalPDX.com. My website is www.CapitalPropertyManagement.com. And that would be a really quick glean into the kind of product that I represent. I'm a fee manager, mostly, and um, have an array of clients that uh, run the gamut in terms of expectations on how to operate a a property. So I'm very familiar and I would say chameleon-like in my attitude toward managing for folks. Um, But very uh, pleased that you've asked the question and invited me today and would welcome any phone calls and or uh, queries via email if uh, folks prefer that uh, type of communication. And uh, again, thank you very much for inviting me today to share some of my experiences. Thank you very much, Maureen. Really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, likewise. Um, we're going to have to say thank you for joining us. We know you're a busy person, a popular person, and a knowledgeable person. So uh, thanks for being on our show here. We're just going to close it out. Look forward to another opportunity in the future. And that was Maureen McNabb with Capital Property Management. That wraps up another episode of Invest in the West. I'm Matt Williams here with Nicholas Cook. Be sure to subscribe so that you can get the next episode.